Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we will be basically dealing with just one verse, verse 39, Acts 2, verse 39. I'll read it, and then we'll go from there. Peter, at the end of this sermon where people have been provoked and cut to the very core of their being. They, they are frightened because the one whom they crucified and rejected did not stay dead, but he rose again, that he was and is the true Messiah that was promised of the old, that he is God in human flesh, and that he is coming back to judge the living and dead. They're frightened, they're, they're broken, and so they cry out, what must we do to be saved? And he basically says, repent. And then he builds off of this in verse 39, and he says, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Now, beloved, before we look at that passage, I want you to understand very clear, and something some of you know well, and some of you perhaps have forgotten or need uh, to learn right now, and that is that we are in a war. And it is a war that spans centuries, actually goes back to almost the furthest reaches of time. And it is a very violent war, though it doesn't always appear to be so. It takes no prisoners, and it is eternal. But it's also very subtle. Now back in 2018, those of you who were here at that time, you'll recall, I did a series through the book of Genesis, only chapters 1 through 11, and it was the purpose, to, my purpose of it was to put in front of you what the Bible actually said about how this world came about and the early times of this world, and then challenge you on whether or not you actually believed what was written. Now, at the core of that whole thing was simply this. I wanted to press home three things, the infallibility, the inerrancy, and what is called the authority of the Word of God. Now, the word infallible infallible simply means that it's not capable of leading you into error, that the Bible will not lead you astray, that it will guide you into truth. Being inerrant means that it has no errors in the original writings, that it will always tell you what is true, even if what is true is evil, but it will always tell you truthfully what happened. Authoritative means just that. It's authoritative. What it commands, what it describes, what it prohibits, and and so on, are all things that the Bible, because it's God's word, expects you to obey and do, and know. Now, 
If you were to go out and ask people you know personally who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord, and you were to ask them what they believe about the first 11 chapters of Genesis and whether or not what is described there is true and right, you would be perhaps quite surprised at how many would give you some answer other than simply yes. Yes, what is written there is true and right. Yes, it truly happened. It is not uncommon to hear something other than that. Now, along with that, there's this thing that is, I don't know really how to describe it. I, I wish we had the ability on up here on the pulpit. Um, by the way, John MacArthur's pulpit allows you to do this. Um, just saying. But it'd be really cool if there's like a tablet here where I, or in a stylus and I could like draw to try to illustrate. Sometimes in my brain, I need to draw to allow what's in my brain come out of my mouth. I don't know why it has to go through my hands first, uh, but it's the way my brain works. But there is this thing called doctrinal or doctrinal movement. Doctrinal movement. It's not a movement of doctrine, maybe like you're thinking, but it's the idea that doctrine seldom stays static. It moves somewhere in your thinking. And so I'm only going to deal with two ways that this looks, but they're important. The first is that one movement starts where it starts at is with good, sound doctrine. It's good, it's basic. They understand the gospel and they understand other things because they've been taught many things that are good and right with regard to theology and doctrine. But at the core of their being, they are not convinced that the word of God is true. Or they are not convinced in itself. There's these two words that are very fancy. Those of you, again, who've been here for uh, many years, you've heard me speak of these words often. For some of you, this may be the first you've heard of them. There's this idea of axiopistic and autopistic. Axiopistic simply means, when it comes to a relationship to the Word of God, is that I believe the Word of God is true and without error and is infallible and absolutely authoritative, not because the Bible says so, but because my rational mind has determined it is that way. I've listened to the arguments, I've looked into it, I've applied sound logical principles to it, and the end result is that I am now convinced that the Word of God is true without error, infallible, and authoritative. The other one is autopistic, which simply is that the Bible affirms that it is these things, it, that it is infallible, inerrant, and authoritative, and I accept it at that point. Simply because the Word of God says it, and I have accepted the fact that the Word of God has said it, and therefore I believe that. When you hold to what is called an axiopistic perspective on the Word of God, you can start with very sound doctrine because you were raised and taught many good things. But inevitably, that position begins to move. And the reason it begins to move is because your authority actually is not resting in the word, but within your own mind. And you will always, beloved, meet somebody smarter than you. And you will always read something better written than what you can write. 
And you will listen to these people, and they will sound so persuasive, and, and they, they always start small with their arguments, and what they will begin to do is steal your hope, because your hope is resting in your ability to argue that the Word of God is authoritative, and therefore, they begin to steal that, and they begin to move you off of that center. And what happens is that what you end up doing is you end up having all of the ingredients necessary for unbelief and apostasy. It doesn't mean you'll end up there, but you have all of the ingredients you need to end up there. You can start out with all the right boxes ticked in your Christian faith about what you believe. I believe this and this and this, and, and somebody listening to you said, wow, that's really great. But if at the, the unspoken part of why do I believe the word of God is true? Is it because I have determined it in my own mind and rational thinking, or is it simply because I accept the fact that the word of God declares itself to be that, and I'm willing and content to stay right there? If you hold to an axiopistic, it makes it very easy to begin to move into an area of unbelief. Now, the second person might be this way. They might have a mess of doctrine. Their their doctrine is all over the map. It is an absolute mess. And as you sit down and interview them and you're ticking off the boxes of good, sound doctrine, you might hear a lot of things that you're like, no, 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 no. But you're like, okay, they understand the gospel, so I'm talking to a Christian. They, they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I got that, and I got a couple of other things I'm happy with, but most of what they believe is all over the place. It's a mess. But they are absolutely convinced the Word of God is the Word of God because the Word of God says so. Which one would you rather pastor? I would rather pastor the second one. Because the first one, his authority is going to rest within himself. So I can all day long show him the word of God. And as long as it conforms to what he accepts, he'll accept what I'm teaching. But he'll also be very quick to dismiss because the word of God itself does not possess its inherent authority. The other person can be all over the place. But you can always bring him to the Word because he's convinced that the Word is true. One, you can shepherd, and one, you cannot. You can only hope to influence him. But he will always rest within his own mind and his own logical thinking as to what he believes. I was just reading uh, Grayson's uh, influential blog, uh, The Chorus in the Chaos. Anyhow, he reposted, I believe... Uh, one, oh no, no, you just posted a thing about the role of women in the church. It was just a meme, very simple. And I was reading uh, this morning, actually, some of the comments that were received. And then he uh, pointed them to an article he wrote a few years ago that was very well done. But what's very interesting is how many people were reacting to what that meme said about the role of women in the church and that they were rejecting that the word of God said what it said and it had authority. It was, well, these are the thoughts of men. Well, that was Paul's opinion, but it's not for today. It's a cultural thing. It's this, it's this. And it ultimately is not wrestling with just what does the word say? We may have disagreements on it, but let's deal with what the word says because the word is a final say. Now, where am I heading with any of this? 
Mom and dads, you want to raise a child who is of that second persuasion. You want to raise a child who utterly is convinced that the Bible is true, not because he thinks it is or because mom and dad told him to, but that he looks at it and he sees that the Word of God declares these things and he rests right there in the simple self-declaration of the Word that the Word is true. Now here in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, we're talking about a promise. Peter says, For the promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off. So we have a promise. What is a promise? Well, a promise is found in verse 38, that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a nice way of saying you shall become a participant in what's known as the New Covenant. And I don't have the time to develop that today, but it's a promise that when the Messiah came and that when God would work, that he would bring a new covenant, a better covenant, and part of the covenant blessings is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so he is saying to these people, because remember, he's looking at a mass of humanity, all of them Jews, in the temple grounds, and he is preaching to them, and some have already been, uh, have been saved, they've already committed, but it says that he continued to urge them to repent and, and to turn away from this perverse generation, and he is urging them by this. He's like, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the one you as good Jews are waiting for, the one that you want to have happen, the one you're hoping in, it is here, and that promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And so he is saying to them, come and receive this promise that comes by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Messiah. So in the context, who are the you? The you in the context is not us. The you are Jews. Jews there present. He says, it is for you. But then he expands it and he says, and not just for you, but for your children. And then he goes even further and says, and to those who are far off. Who are the far off? Well, the far off are the Gentiles. In other words, people like you and I. What I want to argue is that there's a fourth group, not mentioned, but present as well. And that is the promises for our children as well. Now here I'm speaking to you who are Christians And I want you as Christians, especially Christian parents, to hear and to understand what is being said here. The promise of the outpouring of the Spirit, now it's all contingent upon repentance and faith in Christ alone. But when you do that, you are given the gift of the Spirit. You are now placed into the body of Christ. You have all of the gifts of the Spirit, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are yours, but it's not for you to keep It is also for your children. And I want you as parents to own that vision of giving and raising your children, uh, giving the gospel and raising your children to be children who believe. So what I want to do in this sermon is emphasize that idea that children are to be raised in and under the gospel message and of genuine faith. And you might be already saying, well, we do that. I want you just to listen to me and consider your ways. 
I don't want this to be a review. I want it to be an exhortation, an urging, and even an admonition, which always carries a bit of a rebuke, but I don't want you to feel it stinging you. I want you to see the admonition as a warning, an exhortation, a begging, with a bit of a rebuke perhaps in there if it applies. I want you and I to learn to act and look at our children and our grandchildren with eyes and hands that are full of faith. Too often we parent as if we actually expect our children to not believe. We allow them, in fact, a lot of space. In fact, I would say too much space at times because we claim, well, they're not believers and so we can't expect them to act like a believer. We can't expect them to obey us. We can't expect them to not speak lies and so on and so forth. I believe this is untrue, and I believe it should be rejected by Christian parents. Now, at the core of all this is in Genesis chapter 3, so go there. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 1, It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that's Eve, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The question in this section is not really, do you believe the Bible, though? What? Because there was no Bible, right? At the core of it, what was Satan, the serpent, doing with Eve? He was asking her, do you really believe who? God. Do you believe God? Indeed, has God said? This is such a fundamental idea to the Christian faith, and therefore it is always where the attack begins, beloved. It always begins with an attack on truth. Has God really said and then you can fill in the blank. Listen to your own mind and ask yourself, how often has those words come to mind? Has God really said? And then whatever follows. Too often, though, this idea, this thinking, this way of processing the Word of God starts in your home. And that whether you know it or not, you are teaching your children at times to ask that question, has God really said? Has God really said, you shall obey me? Has God really said that you are to respect your parents? Has God really said you are not to speak filthy speech? Has God really said that you are not to steal? Has God really said that you are to stay pure? Has God really said that? That's where the battle is. So ask yourself, even as I speak today, what are the lies maybe that you're tolerating? Worse, what are some of the lies maybe you're telling your children? Ask yourself, how ruthless are you in loving what is true and hating all that encroaches upon truth? Do you love truth more than you even love your children? How ruthless are you? Today, what I want to do again is to plead. Plead with you to battle for the hearts of your children. To see that the enemy is not outside the gates. It's within the gates. It's within the gates of our home. And it's within the gates of the church. 
That is why what is going on in America and in the American church is not to be shocked. We have allowed this idea of truth to be entertained for too long, all because we want to be quote-unquote gospel-centered, and we talk about being gospel-centered, and that's really all that matters. And so if you don't believe this and you don't believe that, and, and your understanding of what the Word says in this one or that thing, at least, well, we all agree the, in the gospel, and so let's just be happy. But all of this is intertwined, and all of this works together, and it all feeds on each other. And you can't just sit here happy with the gospel and you say, well, we got this box ticked, but the rest of my life is filled with this question, has God really said whatever it seems to say? This is not a time, beloved, for the timid. It's not a time for the weak. And it's not the time for the fearful. It is time, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, to be on the alert, to stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. So my first point in this message, built on the idea that the promise is for us and our children and for those who are far off, and I'm saying, and for those people's children, is that our battle will have to be over truth. So as I said, I I did that series in Genesis 1 through 11 a few years ago, back in 2018, and all I was doing was every single week sticking in front of those of you who are here what it said and then asking you, do you believe it? Do you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Do you believe that? Do you believe that in six days he created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh that he rested? Or do you believe something other than that? Is that just a poet, a poetic way of describing evolution? Are you like Tim Keller? Do you believe that there has been, there was for a long, undefined period of time, pre-humanoid people who walked upon this world, who had babies, and that out of that population of pre-humanoids, God selected two, a man and a woman, and named them Adam and Eve. Do you believe that? You will find that nowhere in the scripture, yet he teaches it, and many believe it. What do you believe? Do you believe the serpent came and tempted Eve and deceived her? Do you believe that by the eating of an actual fruit that sin entered the world? Do you believe that these people lived as long as they lived? Do you believe that there was a flood that destroyed all but this one elect family? Do you believe that from that elect family all of us came from and can trace our lineage back to? What do you believe? What do you believe? That's all I was wanting to do. For months, I stuck it in front of me and said, this is what it says, what do you believe? Why? Go to almost any, almost any evangelical seminary or Bible college today, and you will find those 11 chapters are, are almost always minimized or changed. Go to most any evangelical church today, those verses and those chapters are again ignored, minimized, adjusted, because they do not believe that they mean what they say. 
truth. That's always where the fight will be, beloved. It will always be where the fight is. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Pilate said in John 18, 37 to 38, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. What? To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So what does Pilate say? What is truth? You can hear that in our words today with us and our children and our grandchildren. What, what is true, though? That's your opinion. There's all kinds of ways that we can interpret it. I can go this way and you can go that way. Does it really matter? What is truth? But Jesus says that truth sets us free, and all we do is question what is true like Pilate does. Jesus says in John chapter 7 that God's word is truth, and we say that we're too busy to read our Bibles to our children. God says that in Psalm 119, verse 9, that a young man keeps pure his way by conforming it to the Word, and we can't quite find time to memorize passages so we might teach our children. God tells us in Titus 2.1 to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, but we can't quite define what sound doctrine actually is. Truth is only found, according to the Bible, in God. And so if you remove God from anything, and truth then is no longer present. The evil of education today is not that it's teaching gender fluidity or radical socialism or whatever it is that really annoys you. The real evil is that it thinks it can teach truth without acknowledging that God is the source of all truth. So let me ask you this. I'll say it in a, a statement you ask if you believe this. Do you believe that history and mathematics and logic can be rightly understood without the God who made all of them? And if you do, if you think they're essentially neutral, then you are already a person of unbelief. Either God made it all or he didn't. There is no middle ground. Either God is at the core of all things or he's not. What are we raising our children to believe? And are we in fact raising our children to not believe is the question. As a result, many call themselves Christian, but in fact they are more like an atheist. The term usually used is a practical atheist. In one way, all sin, of course, is atheism, right? Most definitely the sin we hide from others. Because like all good atheists, we believe there is no God that actually sees and knows. And so we hide our sins from others because we don't want them to see or to know, right? But it's also because we honestly believe that God is not there. We actually believe we can hide that sin, from the eyes of the only one who matters. That God is not present in our deepest thoughts and loves. And beloved, this is a battle every Christian, including this man at this pulpit, must battle every single day ruthlessly. That you have to constantly remind yourself that God is and I serve him. 
To ignore the battle will inevitably lead to apostasy. To say it another way, to habitually love your sin is to ultimately reveal that you are an actual atheist. You cannot remain faithful in what you do not believe. Does that make sense? You cannot remain faithful. You can do it for a while. You can even do it for many years, but you will not remain if you do not believe it's true. How often have you heard passages like I will quote and decide that they must refer to someone else? Paul writes in Titus 1, verse 16, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now that would not be a gospel word, is it? That would not be the kind of way that gospel Christians should speak, calling a person detestable. Paul, however, has no problem doing so. But we hear that, and we tend to say that's talking about someone else. Rather than first with humility before our Lord, who knows all things, saying, is it I? Do I deny you in my deeds while my mouth professes I know you? In 1 John 2, verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. A simple mark of true belief, beloved, is a life of repentance. That's all it is. When you believe God is, and Jesus is my Lord, and the word is simply true, all it can do is make you daily, in one way or another, repent. Because you're constantly in this fallen age, shifting this way, because the relentless pressure of this age is on you, and it's always pushing you over here, and the Word of God is what's true, and it pushes you back as you repent, and you remind yourself what is true. The reason that real repentance happens is because you believe God is true. And that his word is true. And so you repent. And this repentance includes your home, beloved. It includes your children. You must learn to daily, sometimes minute by minute, fight for what is true. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, turn there with me. Now, some of you are saying, my children are grown, then they're grown. Some of you say, I have no children, then you have no children. Some of you say, well, I believe, but my wife or my husband doesn't believe, then that's your situation. But it doesn't take truth away, does it? It doesn't make the truth stop. The truth is still resident because it's the Word, and it's the Word that is God's Word. And so we still embrace these things. We may have to apply it differently. I'm speaking to parents as they raise their children, or grandparents who are seeking to be an influence with their grandchildren. Did I say grandchildren or grandparents? doesn't matter. You know what I mean. So don't, don't check out if you say, well... My children are gone already. 
Still ask yourself, do I believe these things? In 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which have, some have rejected and suffered shipwrecked in regard to their faith. So, he references in verse 18 this command. What command is it? It's a command all the way back in verse 3. I urge you upon, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus for what purpose? In order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. A miserable task given to Timothy. He is told, go back to Ephesus and fix it. And the way you're going to fix it is not just yell a lot, but you're going to teach truth. And part of that is involved in telling men who are teaching false things to stop it. It's always going to be truth. And I'm going to speak truth into this situation, which sometimes is fun, but most of the time is downright miserable. Why does he need to do that? Because the men in Ephesus, specifically the elders that he put in place back in Acts 20, that were good men and should have known better because he expressly warned them that after he left, grievous wolves would creep in among them and from outside and from within their own midst, among the elders of the church there, and that they would seek to destroy the flock of God. He warned them that in your midst, some of you are going to rise up and turn out not to be what you think you are. And they didn't listen to him, and Ephesus is harmed. So now he sends Timothy to go fix it. Evil entered the church, and evil did its work. Is it any different, beloved, in your home? It's a good fight. Do you believe it's a good fight? Do you believe that what Paul says is go and fight the good fight? Do you think you're involved in a good fight? Do you even know you're in a fight? Do you wake up every day grasping that there's a battle in my home? And by golly, I'm going to be in it every single day. It's a fight, but it's not just any old fight. It's a good fight, a fight of value, a fight that's noble, a fight that's pleasing to God. Did you know that the term fight here is where we get the word strategy? Beloved, what is more noble than laying out a very clear strategy in your home that helps define for you what will and will not be allowed? And then enforcing it. What do you praise? What will you praise? And what will you rebuke? What will you value and what will you despise? When we are fighting over the souls of our children with the gospel of God, then we are involved in the good fight. Your children, beloved, are absorbing lies every day. And either you are resisting those lies every day and speaking truth, or you're not. But there's no middle ground. Notice he gives Timothy and us the tools for the fight in verse 14. Did I say 14? I meant 19. Keeping the faith, or keeping faith and a good conscience. 
The first tool he gives us is keeping faith. Not the faith, which is that body of truth, but it's our faith. It's that idea of our exercising of trust in what is true, of holding fast to Jesus and his word. It's a remembering that salvation and forgiveness is found in Jesus alone. It's a remembering that Jesus is truly Lord, and therefore my life and household ought to reflect that lordship. It is a remembering that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And I believe that, and I ordered my life in light of that. And then second, he says, the second tool is a good conscience. This is simply this practical application of keeping faith in Jesus Christ. It's what it looks like. I believe these things, and my conscience is clear because I keep these things. It's something we all have. But for the Christian, it's this powerful instrument that either strengthens or weakens us in our fight. Some in this room keep a very tender conscience to the things of God's Word. And some of you perhaps spend a lot of times abusing that conscience. A good conscience is one that is knowing that you are forgiven and therefore speaking as one forgiven and living as one who is forgiven. But it means to battle sin, to fight for the faith. That, that means that you grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior. Savior is being faithful to what you say you believe, in other words. It's, it's very simple. It's the basics of life. It's how you eat your food. It's how you conduct yourself at the ball game. It's how you speak to your wife and how you raise your children and how you pay your taxes and on and on and on. Beloved, your children and your grandchildren need to see this. They, they don't need to see you merely preaching at them. Lord, they don't need that. Many a parent fails to understand that all they ever did was preach at their children and never show them what it looks like to walk in faith. They don't need that. They need to see your faith in what you say and what you do. As James says, to show show your faith by your works. They need to see that what you believe is of supreme value. And that nothing will get in front of it or above it. You say that it's too late for you. You say, well, no, my children are gone. Beloved, that's only true if your child is dead. As long as he breathes, you don't stop fighting. How you fight might be different now that they're out of the house, but you fight. It's never too late to repent while you and they both live. But if you are saying that it's too late, my question to you is this. Do you really believe it's too late? Do you really believe it's too late, or is that just another way of saying I don't really want to repent of the things I do. It's sort of like the person who always is asking you for prayer in the, during the time of prayer. They say, yeah, I just need prayer. I'm really struggling with fill in the blank. Have you ever asked yourself, are they really struggling? Because I never seem to see a struggle. Or is it they know they're doing what is wrong They have no intentions of repenting, 
but they want to look like they're repenting, so they're going to make certain that you know in their prayer requests, I'm struggling in this way. I'm struggling with treating my wife like a dog. Why don't you love her then? Well, it's a struggle. What, what's the struggle? It's a, it's a choice. It's a willful choice. I'm going to love my wife. And, and this looks like something. And the word is true. So I go to the word and it defines for me what that looks like. And I, go, I begin to do it. Well, no, it's a struggle. No, no, it's not. Usually it's not. It's a lie. That really means I have no intention of repenting, but I want to look like I'm repenting. It's too late for my children. Is it too late? Or is it that you still don't want to give up what you don't want to give up? It's very hard to tell your child to trust in Christ when what they see in you is fear. When they see in you is anger or bitterness or greed or covetousness. When the fear of man is greater than the fear of the Lord then you are not fighting the good fight. My second point is this. If you want to fight for what is true, then raise your children to believe what is true. If you want to fight for what is true, then raise your children to believe it. Is it too much to ask your children or ask that your children are to be raised in and under the gospel message and faith? Or is that a pipe dream? Is it the expectation of every Christian Household, not just a wish, not just a desire, but the actual expectation by God for you to do. Now, if you were a part of a covenant family, uh, we're not, uh, as a Baptist church, if you were Presbyterian um, or Lutheran, you would see that your, your children are born into a covenant household, which is why you get baptized as a baby, and then they would raise you as a Christian. And there's a value in that. I actually like what they do, except for that baptism part, which I think is not in accordance to the word. But the raising their children as believers, I think, is good in a non-credo Baptist household, which is what we are, if you don't know what that means. We can easily treat our children like non-Christians. Now listen, I'm not saying that they're not a Christian. I'm saying we treat them like a non-Christian because we understand that they haven't yet made a profession of faith, but I think that's in error. Nowhere are you told to raise your child as if they're not a Christian. Think of the commands in the New Testament that that Paul gives to us. You are to raise your children in the fear and the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. That's what you're supposed to. Do your, the children themselves are actually told, obey your parents in the Lord. They actually are told, honor your mother and your father. For in the Old Testament, there's a promise for those children who do that. It goes well for them. So we're to, be able, we are to expect our children actually to lie, act like a Christian from the earliest of days. Whether they're actually a Christian is a separate issue, but that's our home. We live in a Christian home. Kim and I have a home that's a Christian home, and therefore all who live within that home will conduct themselves in accordance to that household. 
And part of that is raising them to think like a Christian, to live like a Christian, to breathe like a Christian, because everything we're doing then is reflecting what the gospel effect is on our lives. We pray before we eat. It's that simple. We actually say, Lord willing... We're faithful with our finances. We're faithful to one another. We're faithful to our children. All of these things are reflections of a Christian home. Nowhere do you see a parent being told, wait until a child professes Christ and then expect them to act like one. This is part of what it looks like then to have a household of faith. A house that holds to sound doctrine, which means that you're never vague in what you believe, and if you are vague, you learn, so you're not vague anymore. Husbands and wife, a husband and wife are people who live in accordance to God's word, rather than the vagaries of this age. But you also live in faith. Now hear this, this is important, you live in faith. What this means is that you live in anticipation that God will work his grace in the lives of your children and your home. How many of you are doing that? Just think. How many of you live with the anticipation that God will save your children? And how many of you live in disbelief? A household that lives in faith will always point to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's not that you're pretending the child is saved, but you're also not pretending that or assuming that he won't believe and be saved. You're raising them with the expectation that they'll believe this. All they know from the lips of mom and dad is the gospel and then what it looks like to live in light of that gospel. You live in an anticipation that the child will come and receive the gospel. Why? Because God has chosen your child to be born in a Christian home. Do you understand how wonderful it is for your children to be living in a home of Christians? Do you understand the blessing? If you don't, then you're probably a second-generation Christian. Every one of you who is a first-generation Christian, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be raised devoid of the gospel. And God, in his rich mercy, reached down and plucked you out of there, and he saved you by grace, right? And you are so thankful. Why did he give you children? So that you might raise them to believe the gospel. This sort of parenting is very powerful because then it captures all facets of the life of your child. The physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the intellectual aspects are all brought under God's truth. And you don't let the lies this world will say ever be allowed in your home without a fight. So every time you hear your child say, well, I don't see why God is going to punish a homosexual. Let's just use that one. And you're like, well, what am I going to say? I mean, I don't like it either, sweetheart. But, you know, that's what's going to happen. You've spoken lies. Doesn't matter what you like. Doesn't matter what she or he likes. Well, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? Well, that's your opinion, but other people believe this, and I think that we should treat each other equally. What's wrong with that? Why do you tolerate that? Do you even know how to fight that kind of a lie that's in your home? A gospel-centered 
faith-building household teaches everyone to look at all of creation, including their mind and their body, and see it through God-centered perspectives. And therefore, my third point is this. Don't parent, or don't be like a child in your parenting. Don't be like a child in your parenting. Three times Paul talks to the messed up Corinthian church, and they were very messed up, and he refers to their childish thinking. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says that he can't even approach to them like adults, but rather as babies in Christ. Immaturity in an adult is never a good thing, and certainly not good for a parent. In chapter 13, verse 11, he speaks about when he became a man, he put away the childish things. Now, the context is about the receiving of, of the fullness, the perfection of God, but, and, and that is a separate issue. I just want you to have him, he understands that the basic normal route for a human being is when you become an adult, you stop acting like a child. You start thinking and talking like an adult. And so in chapter 14, verse 20, he says that they are not to be children in their thinking, but rather in evil, they should be babies. And in their thinking, they should be mature. If that's true for the church, then it's certainly true for your household. Your children need adults who live like adults, think like adults, and believe like adults. Children don't think things through, do they? They're, not, they're told not to touch something because it's hot, and so the first thing they got to do is, of course, touch it and get burned. But mature people understand how things work, and they consider everything necessary before they act. And with that in mind, think of the battle lines that are involved in fighting for the souls of your children. There are four lines that are the battleground. And you've got to come up with a strategy that's going to meet all four of those. The first line is that it, there's a sin or there's still sin in our heart as parents. We have that, right? And, and if you say, oh, I don't have children. Are you married? Yes. Well, you're, you two are two sinners living together, right? And you say, well, I'm single. Fine, you're a sinner and all of your friends are sinners. It doesn't matter. We carry sin within our hearts. From birth, we're brought forth into iniquity. And so that's the first line of battle is, what is my strategy for dealing with my own sin as dad? You have heard me say this many, many times, but one of the best things you can do for your children is to confess to them your sin. Because all of you who are parents have sinned against your children. But the thing they've never seen mom or dad do is acknowledge it. They all know you did it. They're not dumb. But mom and dad has never said, how I spoke to you was wrong. Please forgive me. The second battle line is sin within your child's heart. You're dealing with the sinner. What are you going to do? What's your strategy? Is it just to send them to Sunday school and hope for the best? The third battle line is a world system that is utterly opposed to everything you believe that's true. That God rescued you from this evil age because this age is evil. And then the fourth battle line is Satan himself, who, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, says that he blinds the eyes of the unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of Jesus Christ. So, what's your strategy? What is your strategy 
for attacking that. All four of those things are fighting against you. How are you fighting back? I'm going to argue it's going to be with the only thing you have, and that's truth. Peter was looking out at a massive crowd on the day of Pentecost, and he saw people who were called by God's name, but who had forgotten what was true. What about you? Have you forgotten? May I encourage you, just simply keep the gospel center, but never just teach the gospel. Preach and live the consequences of the gospel, especially that part that he is returning to judge the living and the dead. Your children need to see it. You don't have to be preaching like you're on some pulpit or a mountaintop. But you can weave those kinds of things into your speech patterns and your actions all the time. Why are you doing that, Dad? Well, sweetheart, why do you think I'm doing that? I don't know. I, that doesn't even make sense to me. Well, think about it. What, just wild guess. Why do you think I'm doing that? I don't know. Because it honors the Lord. That's not that hard. That's actually a pretty easy conversation to have, right? You don't have to, now what? You're going to, right? You just got to say, because it honors the Lord. And it's so casual. And the reason it's casual is because that's literally what you do. If they walk out of your house not believing, it's not because they don't know what to believe. They just don't believe. But even then, they leave with an incredible amount of knowledge that they will then spend the rest of their life running from. And they can't escape it because it's in their hearts. Because you put it there as a faithful mom and dad. So now they're 30 and they come over to your house and they're complaining about this and that. And they're not going to hear for the first time. They're going to hear for the one millionth time. Well, buddy, do you know why? Yes, Dad, because the world has fallen and it's opposed to the principles of God. And, yep, that's it. I know, Dad. I know you know, but you don't believe that. So why are you complaining? I'm just telling you how my day went. I understand that, buddy. I don't care. I don't care how your day went. You live your life in rejection of God. And then you find out that God puts the principles of res- and consequences into your life. And now you're upset. I would say to you, repent. Now, do you want to go play golf or not? It's a conversation. It's just part of your life. They have to be constantly shown this way is a way of death. But you don't have to be beating them on, but you also don't have to be trying to avoid it. From the point that they were given to you as a little babe until they're in the grave or you're in the grave, you are to be a faithful parent, always exhorting, always encouraging, always instructing, always repenting. They may come to you when, you're, when they're 40 and they might look at you and you're in your frailty and your later years and they may, they, they may say, oh, I remember that day where you yelled at us about that and your mind will go back to that moment. What do you do at that moment when you realize you acted like a toad? You repent. You look at your 40-year-old son and you say, you're right. You're right. It was wrong. It was sin. Please forgive me. 
You preach the gospel to them. You show them, again, the way. You, uh, well, you don't know what it's like back then. I was tired. Or you can act like a Christian and preach to your children. You'll find that they will not be afraid to come to you. They're going to roll their eyes at you. Oh, Lord, they will roll their eyes. What do you care? When was an eye roll ever that painful? Fight. You fight for your children. So let me give you several random series of thoughts. There's no order, and the rest of them you can look at the notes if you want. First, never disparage the power of the gospel even when your child rebels. Don't lose heart. If you have taught them faithfully the gospel, then the power of God unto salvation resides in their mind. Never disparage the power of the gospel. It just may not work in your time frame. Second, never abandon biblical convictions to make memories. Never abandon biblical convictions so that you can make a memory. But also, don't forget to make memories that are worth remembering. Give your children an overflowing wellspring of examples to remember as they go out into the world. Be the mom and dad that when they become a mom and dad, they can say, well, what did dad do? What did mom do? Don't be the mom and dad where they're saying, what did mom do or dad do? And then we'll do the opposite. Be a faithful parent that creates good memories, right ones. Third, we teach our children to be discontent because usually we're discontent. There's a lot of power in being a content parent. You can be very poor and very content. When your child is discontent, there's a very good chance that you yourself are instructing them that. Consider to ex- that and can examine yourself. Fourth, when we complain about being a mother or a father, all we really are saying is that we cannot and will not do what God commands us to do. If you have a baby, you're a parent. Deal with it. It's not a place to complain. It is the same with your health and your employment. God has ordained this life that you're in, and you are called to honor him in whatever that might be. As Paul would say, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Now, he obviously didn't really mean eat to the glory of God, right? Yes, he did. So what's that look like? When we defend a sin, now listen to this one, when we defend sin and call it trauma or anxiety or whatnot, we are declaring to our children that God is not serious. Trauma is our new buzzword. It is born out of victimhood. And it's not consistent with our identity in Jesus Christ. If you define yourself or your children by using trauma or victim-type language, you are harming them. And the thing you need to do is develop a strong theology of suffering. Because whatever trauma you may endure, whatever you want to call trauma, and everything is trauma now, will never be the trauma of being the sinless one becoming sin 
on our behalf. And yet with the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We communicate, number six, what we believe by what we treat. Now hear me. We communicate what we believe by what we treat as non-negotiable. What we prioritize, what we love, what we will become angry about, what we enjoy, and what we spend money on. What are the non-negotiables of your home? Seven, we parent too often in fear and unbelief, and it shows in your home. What is it you're plowing into your children? Fear or faith? We fight battles that do not exist, and we spend time slaying dragons that are made of plastic. Do you believe, Paul, when he says that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against these demonic forces? Which one is it? Where is your fighting going on? Is it a fight of faith or just some external thing? We have friends friends in L.A. who their children came to our house and our children had apparently a My Little Pony. Some of you will remember those things. We don't know. We, we didn't spend money on our toys. We just got whatever was free and grabbed. And the kids had it, and he came to my office at the church, and he talked to me about it. He's like, in the future, would you put that away because we don't let our children play with my little pony? I'm like, why? And and he had a really long explanation about it. I'm like, you know it's just a chunk of plastic. And he's like, no, no. It represents this and that. And then he another week corrected me for eating french fries because I offered him some. He's like, no, my my body is the temple of the spirit. So I said, can we talk? He's like, sure. So we looked at the passage that he was quoting out of context (laughs) and I said, you know, you can eat a french fry to the glory of God. And from that day forward, he ate french fries, but he never got over My Little Pony, and he raised two excellent atheists. He fought all the battles they were to fight, except the one that was worth fighting for. We, number nine, create a separation between faith and life as if they can exist separately. That's how you raise a pagan. They have to come to church. The guy opened their Bible. That's good. That's right. But the rest of their life can do whatever they do. Woe to the parent who practices Isaiah 5.20 which reads, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's not a stronger word than the word woe in the Hebrew. It's the worst of the worst. You are utterly undone. Do not raise your children to call 
good what is evil. Every time you hear that comes from their mouth, you meet them with a rebuke and a correction. My children still will tease me to this day the number of times I would turn the TV to pause and say, that's wrong. Oh, dads, here he goes again. He's preaching. But you know what they're doing? Many of them are doing it now to their poor children. You know why? Because there's truth. There's truth. Why do we tolerate that? Lucille Ball might be hilarious to watch, but she was incredibly manipulative, deceptive, and disrespectful. We can chuckle at it and call it good, or we can call it for what it is. The young people are like, who? Number 11, ask yourself this. What is a masculine man and a feminine female? What are they? If you can't answer that, then there's no way you're raising one. (laughs) What is a masculine man and a feminine female? Are your standards of this age or in accordance to Scripture? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1, verse 7. It means you must establish a home that fears the Lord if you want to raise children who will believe. So start young, parents. Like what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4 when he says, When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. The father had the guts to actually say, Listen to me and do what I tell you and you will live. When I was a tender little boy. What a precious reality. That's David pulling Solomon and saying, this is how you live. And never underestimate the power of an example. Let's, I'll have you turn here and we'll close. In 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter has just said, look, when you sin and are harshly treated, you shouldn't be proud of yourself that you endure that. You, you should endure it. You've sinned. But when you do what is right, in verse 20, and you suffer for it, and you patiently endure that, that finds the favor of God. Why? For this reason, you have been called for this purpose. This is the, your calling. What's the calling? To suffer for doing what's right. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. 
Beloved, never underestimate the power of example, and I can say that because God has given us Jesus as our example. Not only is our sin bearer, and not only is he our shepherd, not only is he our savior, but he is our example. And so what he does in chapter 3 then, now notice, he's like, you have an example to follow, Jesus, and then what does he look like? In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Husbands, live with your wives, in verse 7, in an understanding way. 8, let all be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble in spirit. What he is saying is, I'm going to tell you in chapter 3 and following all sorts of things you need to do in your life. Why do you do it? Because you have an example. You have an example in Jesus Christ, and he is the one that you model yourself over. Beloved, if that is what you do, and they watch, your children watch you from their birth until they are leaving the home of being a faithful parent, you will have a very compelling ability to call your children to believe. Take this idea, take this idea that starts with Jesus Christ, teach it to your children when they're one and when they're 10 and when they're 18. That is your calling. Let's pray. So, Father, help us to that task. Help us to repent where we need to repent, be reminded where we need to be reminded, to hold fast to the gospel in the midst of it. To those here who these words hurt, I pray that you would encourage them to look again to the hope that's found in Christ, but also the strength that comes from the Spirit that they might repent. For those who are encouraged, that they would not be filled up with pride and arrogance, take that they would take heed lest they also stumble and fall, that all of us enter into this task with a spirit of endurance, knowing that it's a long haul and a long fight. But Father, let no man or woman in this room ever stop fighting. Let them fight the good fight, the noble fight, the fight that is Christ. Help us to that task. Help us as a church to come alongside each other as we all battle those things. In your son's holy name, amen.